Now, for the, uh, the bulk of our time this morning, we're going to be in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But before we get there, I wanted to take uh, a bit of time to speak to something related to, to last week's text at the end of Genesis chapter 2. After last week's sermon, it became clear to me that I had left out an important point of application. And I want to go back and spend just a few moments to speak to that point, and then uh, we'll, we'll move ahead to look at Genesis 3. But for starters, if you would, look with me uh, to Genesis 2, beginning in verse 21, and we'll read through to the end of chapter 2. As Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, if you were with us last week, we were considering these words in regard to marriage and how we can preserve and respect the institution of marriage. Of marriage, and I spoke to singles, I spoke to married couples, but I didn't specifically speak to those who have been divorced, and I should have. And that's what I wanted to do here for just a few moments this morning. Now, we saw last week from Matthew 19 how one of the implications that our Lord Jesus drew from the Genesis account, specifically from Genesis 2.24, that what God has joined together, let no man separate. But yet, Living in a fallen and sinful world, we know that these separations sometimes do occur. We know that divorces do happen, even though they should not happen. And we live, unfortunately, in a time and place where divorce is not uncommon. As I was thinking this past week, I can pretty easily count 10 or 12 divorces among the members of my extended family. And that's not digging back into the recesses of my extended family too far. That's extended family pretty near to me. And so when we think about the issue of marriage, we also need to think about the subject of divorce. Now, given the teaching of our Lord and the entirety of Scripture, we know that when a divorce occurs, it is because of sin. In biblical terms, there is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. When there is a divorce, at least one person is sinning. Sometimes it's two people, but at least one. In some divorces, there is an innocent party. In other divorces, both parties are guilty. And I realize that divorces come for a multitude of reasons, but we need to be clear that the two explicit reasons given in Scripture for which divorce can be allowed are for immorality and for desertion by a non-believing spouse. In those cases, the... Sin involved and the innocent party can, at least potentially, at least possibly, be relatively easy to determine. But sometimes divorces occur for reasons which are different. Reasons which are difficult, if not impossible, to justify on biblical grounds. So what then? What if... You? What if even you as a Christian have pursued a divorce that you had no business pursuing? What if you as a Christian have become the guilty party by pursuing divorce? Well, at that point, under those circumstances, you as a Christian and we as a church need to treat the sin of that kind of a divorce like any other sin. We don't justify it. We don't make excuses for it, but neither do we wallow in it. We're Christians. Part of being a Christian is recognizing that you are a sinner. In order to believe the good news, we have to know the bad news that we are sinners. And part of being a Christian means confessing our sins to the Lord. Part of being a Christian means receiving forgiveness for our sins, whatever those sins happen to be. We believe the forgiveness of sins, whatever those sins happen to be. We believe the forgiveness 
of sins, that even the sin of a divorce that was pursued when it should not have been pursued is forgiven to all who believe through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Part of being a Christian means that we recognize one another as believers despite what our past sins have been. We cannot treat sinful conduct in a divorce as an unpardonable sin because it is not an unpardonable sin. Now, I realize that the reality of divorce and, and then the prospects of moving forward from a divorce potentially raises the question of remarriage. Now, recognizing that different situations have their own nuances, I'll refrain from giving general counsel here in that regard except for this, that if you are in that circumstance and you're considering the issue of remarriage, please do so in consultation with the elders. In, uh, in its chapter on marriage and divorce, the Westminster Confession of Faith stated that in a divorce, a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretions in their own case. The reason that the Westminster Confession of Faith said that was because of the tendency that we have to justify ourselves and to justify our own actions. We say to ourselves, I can do this because of whatever. Well, can you really? Should you really? And I think that's, I think that's helpful in that the Westminster Confession of Faith says that in regard to divorce, and I would extend that to the issue of remarriage as well, that a public and orderly course ought to be followed. And part of that means receiving biblical counsel from those who are in a place and position to give biblical counsel. And so I, I say all that I've said on, on this point in, in addressing divorce, not to encourage divorce in any way, may God forbid, nor in any way to soften the biblical teaching on the subject at all, but rather I want to speak frankly and to be clear so that we can all be on the same page, that there is grace and forgiveness here, just as there is for, for any other sin. And there is also grace for healing. Whether one is the guilty party or an innocent party in a divorce, there's bound to be a lot of hurt and a lot of wounds. There's bound to be some emotional trauma involved. There can be awkwardness. There can sometimes be a stigma associated with divorce. And if you find yourself out there, and you're struggling in, in any of those regards, you need to run to Christ. Whether guilty or innocent, you go to Him. You find healing and grace from Christ. And we as a church need to be a place where those who have been divorced can find healing and hope and can press forward with us toward the prize for the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So I wanted to just try to make that point of application because I had failed to do so uh, last week. Now, now let's, let's move ahead to our, our text for this morning, which is uh, Genesis 3. We'll be in the first seven verses here of Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now these verses that we have just read show us the first temptation and the first sin in human history. Now up to this point in the narrative of Genesis, there has been nothing that was evil. God's creation was good. But now we see something different. We see a crafty servant talking to Eve, tempting her to question the goodness of God and to eat of the forbidden fruit. 
we see that she did. We see that Adam followed her lead. And then we see the beginnings of the effects of sin. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, we'll, first of all, just just work through the, the history that is given to us here. We'll consider some of the questions that are, that are raised by the history that is given here. And then, towards the end, we'll come to an application point, understanding and overcoming temptation. So, we're going to walk through the text, and then we'll come to our application, which is understanding and overcoming temptation. These verses are very important and they raise for us all kinds of questions. Some of the questions we can answer on the basis of the scriptures. Some of the questions we can make an approach to an answer on the basis of scripture. And in regard to some of the questions, we have to rest in the truth of Deuteronomy 29.29, which says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever and ever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And so, first of all, we see this serpent here, which is more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. This serpent speaks. This serpent tempts the woman to disobey God. The Apostle Paul bears witness to the historicity of this event when he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And so who is this serpent? Well, the scripture does not leave us in the dark on that point. We read the words of John in Revelation 12:9, where he speaks of the great dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. John tells us there in Revelation 12 that the devil and his angels were thrown down out of heaven. And again, Revelation 20, verse 2, we read of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. The serpent is Satan. Not that Satan was himself literally a snake, but that he took possession of and used this serpent as an instrument by which to speak to Eve. And as that reference in Revelation 12, 9 points out, Satan had angels who were with him and that he at one time resided in heaven. This indicates to us that Satan is an angelic being, now, however, a fallen angelic being. And of course, this raises other questions, doesn't it? About the creation of angels and the rebellion of Satan. When were the angels created? Why and how and when did Satan rebel against God? Now, as to the the first of those questions, when angels were created, I think we should understand the the creation of the angels to have occurred during the creation week of of Genesis 1, what uh, some have referred to as the Mosaic beginning. And I would think near to the beginning of that week, on the basis of Job 38, verses 6 and 7, which speaks of the sons of God, that is, the angels shouting for joy when God created the world. Now, beyond that, I would echo the sentiments of Martin Chemnitz when he said, Scripture does not expressly state the precise time and day of the creation of angels. And I would echo the conclusion of Ambrose in the early church when he said, We are free to be ignorant because we neither must nor can know. Now, as to the second question, why and when and how, Did Satan rebel against God? This, I confess, is a subject that is shrouded in mystery. That all of God's creation was good and very good. It's clear from Genesis 1 that something terrible entered into the created order such that the created order no longer is now good as it once was. That is equally clear. We know that sin in the world was introduced by Satan, that Eve was beguiled by the serpent, as Genesis tells us and as Paul reaffirms for us. Our Lord speaks of the devil in John 8, 44, and says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And John speaks of Satan, 1 John 3, 8, when he said he has sinned from the beginning. So God is good. He's not the author or approver of evil. 
As our Lord Jesus says in Mark 10, 18, no one is good except God alone. David affirms in Psalm 5, 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. We find in Zephaniah 3, 5, he will do no injustice. So God is good. His creation was good. But Satan exercised his will and rebelled against God and then succeeded in bringing man into rebellion as well. And so Satan had already rebelled against God by the time that he showed up in the garden and took possession of this serpent and tempted Eve. Now some orthodox interpreters of Scripture have thought that the words of Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, have reference to the fall of Satan. The context of Isaiah 14 is prophecy against the king of Babylon. Some have thought that, however, the language of Isaiah 14, 12 and following is too lofty to actually describe the king of Babylon and therefore must refer back to the spiritual being who was working through the king of Babylon, namely referring back to Satan. This is what we find in Isaiah 14, verses 12 and following. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, likewise, some have pointed to the words of Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15, words which, uh, as words which ultimately point back to the rebellion of Satan. Now, the, prophet, the, the context of Ezekiel 28 is a prophecy against the, uh, the city of Tyre. Now, I would allow that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 could potentially be pointing back to the rebellion of Satan. I would allow that as a possibility. I wouldn't reject it out of hand. But I think we're on much more solid ground, though perhaps with less details, when we think about a text like 2 Peter 2.4, in which we read, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And in the context of 2 Peter chapter 2, the if is not merely hypothetical, but it actually forms a, a list of God's acts of judgment and redemption. If God did not spare angels, if God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, if God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah but rescued righteous Lot, then Peter draws the conclusion. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In other words, since the Lord has done these things in the past, then he is able also to take care of the godly today and keep the unrighteous under punishment. One example, according to Peter, of the way in which the Lord has done that in times past was that he did not spare angels when they sinned. Another text is Jude verse 6, where we are told that angels did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness, for the judgment of the great day. Angels did not remain where they ought to have remained. They abandoned their own proper abode. They transgressed a boundary. In the words of 2 Peter 2.4, they sinned. And so we don't know much about the creation of the angels in general or of the fall of Satan and his angels, that is, his demons, but we do know that they were created. We do know that, in fact, they sinned. Again, 1 John 3.8, he was sinning from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so God is good. Satan and his demons rebelled against God. Though God is all-powerful and all-good, he permitted this to occur. Nothing which has ever happened or will ever happen has occurred outside of his sovereign plan. And this raises another question, doesn't it? Why did this happen? Why did God choose to allow his creation to fall into sin? This is a question which has perplexed minds and perplexed them greatly. Certainly we must say that it was for his own purposes, for his own glory. 
Proverbs 16.4 says the Lord has created everything for his own ends, even the wicked for the day of destruction. But this is a question into which we must acknowledge we can go so far and then can go no further. If I can borrow the words of the, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he said, the question of the origin of evil, second to that of existence itself, is the greatest enigma of life and the heaviest cross for the intellect to bear. The question, whence evil, has occupied the minds of humans in every century and still waits in vain for an answer that is more satisfactory than that of Scripture. He went on to say, The sinful act is caused by the sinful will. But who will indicate to us the cause of the sinful will? Sin started with lying. It is based on illusion, an untrue picture, an imagined good that was not good. In its origin, therefore, it was folly and an absurdity. And I would also echo the sentiment of the theologian Herman Vitzius when he was seeking to grapple with the dual truths that, on the one hand, God is sovereign, and yet also that he is not the author or approver of evil. And he said this, he said, Though it be difficult, nay, impossible for us to reconcile these truths with each other, Yet we ought not to deny what is manifest. In other words, we can't deny either one on account of that which is hard to be understood. We will religiously profess both truths because they are truths and worthy of God. Nor can the one overturn the other. Though in this our state of blindness and ignorance of God, we cannot thoroughly see the amicable harmony between them. Again, this is a mystery into which we can go so far, but no further. Augustine said, trying to discover the cause of such deficiencies is like trying to see the darkness or hear the silence. Suffice it to say that the Lord gave to angels and to men originally a freedom of the will whereby they could, in their original condition, choose good or evil. Satan and his angels chose to rebel. And in that rebellion, Satan wanted to bring down the crown of God's creation and bring him down with him. And so that is what he was up to when he was there in the garden. It was his mission to murder. He was a murderer from the beginning. His aim was not literally to do bodily injury so as to induce death, but to bring about their death by bringing the sentence of God's judgment against them. The Lord promised death if Adam violated the command to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Satan could get Adam and Eve to eat from the tree which God had forbidden, then he could bring about their death. He could, in that way, murder them. And in order to bring about the murder, he lied. Again, as Jesus says, whenever he lies, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But if you, if you look to the text here of Genesis 3, he begins much more subtly than that in verse 1. He twists the truth by means of asking a question. He doesn't begin with a barefaced lie. He simply asks the question, and in asking the question puts a spin on the truth. He says to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? It was a question, just a question. But don't you see how it was a twisting question? It was a question with a design to call into doubt the goodness of God. Has God said you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Is he really that bad? Has he forbidden everything that is wholesome and everything that is good from you? Now there was no explicit assertion of anything that was positively false in what the serpent said here in verse 1. It was a question. But that did not make the question benign. It was a malignant question, pregnant with an underlying point of view which he hoped the woman would adopt, a point of view in which God was seen as less than a generous provider who has the ultimate welfare of his people in mind. Satan wanted Eve to think that God was holding out on her, that he was keeping her back from something which was good for her. And that's why Satan subtly twisted the truth in asking the question that he asked Someone once said it, 
A subtle half-truth is truly a devilish lie. And Eve responded to the question of the serpent by saying, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, because of the response which she gave, Eve has been accused of both adding to the word of God, thus making the commandment of God more harsh and strict than it actually was, and at the same time, she has also been accused of beginning to waver and to doubt the commandment and promise of God. Now, as to the first charge, it's been said that she, she added to the word of God when she said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. If you look back to the command given to Adam, chapter 2, verse 17, the command from God simply said, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Nothing was said about touching the fruit. Now, in regard to this, the second charge, that she began to, to waver in her belief in what God had said, I think the King James Version and the ESV uh, give a more literal translation of Eve's response uh, in that they render her as saying that you shall not eat of them or touch them lest you die. And thus some have read that phrase, lest you die, as her injecting a little bit of doubt into the matter of whether or not they would die. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Now, what should we make of these two charges raised against Eve? As to the first, it is certainly clear that Eve did not relay to Satan verbatim the commandment as God had given it back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. But in my estimation, I would say that Eve captured not only the letter, but also the spirit of the law. Even though touching the fruit was not explicitly forbidden, let me just ask you, is there anyone in their right mind who honestly believes that touching the forbidden fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, would be a good idea? In our family, we have an expression, stay far away from trouble. Does anyone really think it would have been a benign activity to walk right up there to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to gaze intently at the fruit, cup your hands around it and just pluck it off the tree, carry it around? Far be it from any one of us to think that that would be okay. Calvin went so far in defending Eve as to say, it was impossible for Eve more prudently or more courageously to repel the assault of Satan than by objecting against him that she and her husband had been so bountifully dealt with by the Lord that the advantages granted to them were abundantly sufficient. She expressed her pious disposition by anxiously observing the precept of God. I don't think Eve, it's very clear again, Eve didn't verbatim relay the charge uh, relay the, the commandment uh, as it had been given back to Satan. But I think, I think Eve understood the commandment and understood a practical application of the commandment. Now as to the second charge, though, again, her words are not verbatim as they had been given to Adam, the addition of the word lest in the phrase lest you die, I don't think need necessarily express any doubt about the certainty of the penalty of death. All in all, I would tend to agree with John Gill, who said that neither of the two charges against Eve had been sufficiently proved. Others may disagree, and that's fine. I can certainly see where they're coming from. Because on the one hand, we don't want to add to God's word, do we? We don't want to say that God has forbidden something if, in fact, he has not forbidden it. First Timothy chapter 4, Paul calls it a doctrine of demons, to forbid those things which are given to us by God and intended for us from God. The specific things which Paul is dealing with there was uh, the issue of men forbidding marriage and uh, demanding abstinence from certain foods. These were things that God had given. God instituted marriage for men and women to get married, and God created food to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and those who know the truth. And so we must not forbid what God does not forbid. We must not make laws where he makes none. True enough. But at the same time, we must also not read and apply the word of God in such a way that we hypocritically adhere to the letter of the law and at the same time miss the fact that the law of God is going for our hearts. 
Our Lord Jesus is very clear in the Sermon on the Mount about this, that the command forbidding adultery does not only forbid the act, but it forbids what takes place in the heart before the act. He teaches us that the commandment against murder means that you shall not be angry with your brother, call him a good-for-nothing, call him a fool. You see what I mean? The commandments need to be understood not as bare letters which apply to a very limited set of circumstances, but as the living word of God which are given to us for our good. So on the one hand, we want to avoid a pharisaical hypocrisy which invents laws and therefore makes an unnecessary hedge around the law. You can think of what the, uh, what the Pharisees did with the, the Sabbath day in terms of what they prescribed as work and said you can't go beyond this. You could walk 1,999 paces in our terms about 875 yards but you couldn't go any further. Um, you couldn't tie or loosen a knot on Sabbath because that was considered work. Jesus said in Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. They're making rules. Placing them on people. We don't want to do that. So we don't want to add to God's word. We don't want to tie up burdens and lay them on people's back. But on the other hand, we don't want to be permissive and lax. Just because in doing so, we might be able to fool ourselves that we are remaining within the bare letter of the law. And so whether we may find fault with Eve's response or not, it's clear. She understood the basics. She knew that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was off limits. She knew what the penalty was for violating the commandment of God. She knew that they would die. And she knew that God was not stingy. Right? Satan's question, his twisting question, which he had asked to her, was trying to set her up and make her think that God was stingy. Has God said you can't eat from any tree of the garden? He said, no, we can from all of them, except for one. So far, she was holding the line. Now, depending on how you judge her, maybe she wasn't doing so flawlessly, but she wasn't giving way to Satan. Not yet. But then in verse 4 comes the all-out lie. Started with a twisting question. Verse 4 comes the lie. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. God says you will. Satan says you won't. Who are you going to believe? And then comes the second part of the lie. Notice how in what follows the insinuation of the twisted question of verse 1 continues and increases in its strength. Satan's insinuation was that God's, God's holding out on you. There was something good out there and God won't let you have it. And from that, it is implied that God is not good in himself and that he does not have your good at heart. And now that insinuation increases in its strength in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there's some truth there. But the insinuation is evil and wicked. It was true that in the day they ate of it, their eyes would be opened. They would know good and evil. It was true. If you look down to chapter 3, verse 22, you can see how God speaks of them after they did eat. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Their eyes were open. They did become like God. They knew good and evil. But Satan's insinuation was that God was holding back from them something that was good. The Lord God was doing no such thing at all. Satan made Eve think that God did not want her and Adam to reach their full potential. He said, you can be like God. You can know good and evil. How wonderful, how wonderful would that be? But God is keeping this good thing and this wonderful experience away from you. And Eve was deceived by this. She believed the lie of Satan that she would not die. She believed the insinuation that God was holding her back from something that was good. And the New Testament record is clear and explicit about the fact that she was deceived. Again, 2 Corinthians 11.3. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Likewise, 1 Timothy 2.14, which Paul cites as the reason why women must not teach or exercise authority in the church. He says, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell 
into transgression. She was deceived. Satan had tricked her. And then what does she do? She looks at the tree. She looks at the forbidden fruit. She saw that it was, it was good for food. It looked good, perhaps as good as any of the other fruit that they were allowed to eat in the garden. It was a delight to the eyes. There was nothing repulsive in the fruit itself. Nothing repulsive in the tree from which it came. And in her estimation, the tree was desirable to make one wise. She wanted her eyes opened. And perhaps that was even more appealing than the food value of it. There was an abundance of food there in the garden. She could have all she wanted. She wanted this because it offered something different. It offered the opportunity to have her eyes open, to become wise, to become like God, knowing good and evil. That's what she wanted. Satan had spoken to her, Satan had beguiled her and deceived her, had stirred her up so that she would have this desire within her. She gets close, she looks at it, she desires it, and to borrow the words of verse 6, she took from its fruit and ate it. She disobeyed God. Herman, Herman Bavink described the process of temptation and sin like this. The mind entertains the idea of sin, the imagination beautifies and converts it into a fascinating ideal. Desire reaches out to it, and the will goes ahead and does it. That's what Eve did. That's what happened here. And the bad things did not stop there, did they? She gave to her husband, who was with her. He ate it too. And the way the scene is described for us, it makes it appear most likely that Adam was right there with her during this whole situation. The text isn't explicit about this for sure, but that seems to have been the situation. It seems that Adam was there listening to the serpent, watching him beguile his wife. And given what we were told, it looks like Adam sat by passively as all of this was being done. And after his wife ate, she gave some to him, and he ate also. But this eating was different in more ways than one. Again, 1 Timothy 2.14 says, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. I'm, sure, I'm not sure that it necessarily follows that Adam wasn't deceived at all, but he wasn't deceived as his wife was deceived. He wasn't beguiled by the serpent as she had been. Maybe he was beguiled by his wife. Maybe he walked into sin with his eyes open to a greater extent, at least somewhat. But his sin differs from that of Eve in another way as well. The second aspect is that Eve was not a covenant head of humanity. Adam was. Even though Eve preceded Adam temporally in eating the fruit, nevertheless, the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die. It does not say, as in Eve all die. Eve's sin had consequences for her. Adam's sin had consequences for him and for the rest of his posterity. That is, for all of us here today. In verse 7, we see the immediate results of their sin. Their eyes were opened. Satan was right. Their eyes would be opened. But this was not a good opening at all. It was the opening of their eyes in the sense that now they realize they had sinned. Their consciences are pricked. They see that they are naked. Earlier they'd been naked and not ashamed. So they make coverings for themselves because now they are ashamed. And this is not just a matter of physical nakedness. They now realize what they have done. They've sinned against the Lord. That they've done a shameful deed and are deserving of punishment. And they want to hide. They want to hide now because they're guilty and ashamed. And Lord willing, we'll see more of that next week as we continue on in Genesis 3. Now, inasmuch as we've seen here the temptation of Satan toward Eve and the subsequent fall of Adam as well, let's seek then to, to dig into and understand the issue of temptation so that, by God's grace, we may overcome it. This first temptation came to Eve from a source that was outside of herself. 
not yet being sinful themselves and no human sin being yet in the world, the only possible source of temptation was Satan himself. We often speak of the Christian's three enemies as being the world, the flesh, and the devil, drawing on Paul's language in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. But at this point in human history, the world was good, and there was nothing evil in Adam and Eve's heart. That being the case, the only source of temptation was Satan himself. It was a source external to her. And therefore, in this way, it wasn't sinful for Eve to be tempted. The source was external to her. Even so it was with our Lord Jesus Christ. As, as Jim read for us from Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had no original sin in him. When he was tempted, he was tempted by a source which was external to him. And, should have noticed in that text of Matthew 4 that Satan employed some of the same strategy against Jesus that he did here with Eve. He attempted to twist what God had said. He posited illegitimate ways of advancing both to Eve and to Jesus. He told Eve that her eyes would be open, that this is the way forward, you want to do this. He told Jesus that he would give him all the kingdoms of the world. if He would just bow down and worship him. But Jesus refused. And so we see a picture of how Satan operates in temptation, how he twists the word of God. He raises a question about it. Did God really say? Sometimes he may ask the question as to raise a doubt about what in fact God did say. Sometimes he may ask the question so as to imply something false about God. He seeks to entice by implying that we're actually missing out on something that is really good. He tells us that God is keeping us back and that the way forward is to listen to Him rather than listening to God. The way forward, the way to find fulfillment and happiness and joy, he says, is to follow His suggestions and to reject what God has said. This is the way He rolls. He is a liar and His intent is to murder. Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And now, with the human race being fallen in Adam, the situation is even now more complicated because of original sin. Because of Adam's sin and the fact that the whole human race is now in Adam, there are other sources of temptation other than simply Satan himself. We have the flesh, which is inclined towards evil, and we have the world. We have other sinful people around us enticing us to sin, there are long-standing sinful customs and practices of the world toward, uh, of which we are aware and toward which we are inclined because of the flesh. If Eve was tempted and fell into sin by the instigation of the devil, we might in a way say that Adam was tempted by the world, the world at this point being his wife, because she enticed him to sin and he listened to her. Now you fast forward 6,000 years or so to us, and what we find is that our temptations are not always the same as those of our first parents. Inasmuch as we now have our fallen flesh within us, which is inclined toward evil, this means that not all of the temptations that we face are things that are external to us. In other words, this means that we're not always innocent in the temptations that we face. Now, Eve was not to blame for the fact that Satan came and spoke to her. She was innocent in regard to the temptation. She became guilty of sin which resulted from the temptation. But she wasn't guilty of the fact that Satan made evil suggestions to her. And like matter, Jesus was innocent in regard to the temptations which, with which Satan tempted him. But now, as fallen people, sometimes we are guilty from the moment of temptation because... Sometimes those temptations come from within us. That is, they come from the evil that is at work in our hearts. And isn't this what James said in James 1, 14 and 15, when he said, But each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sometimes temptations do come from outside of us. The suggestion of Satan, the allurement of the world, 
But sometimes the temptations come from within. Within our own hearts, our own evil lusts and desires. And thus Jesus says in Mark seven twenty one through 23, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, enver, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. And though the sources of temptation are not all the same, yet the path of temptation often takes a similar tack. We can be carried away and enticed by the temptation and suggestion of Satan, by the temptations and suggestions of the world, or by our own flesh. And so often, temptation comes to us, and we fall into it so quickly that it, it, just, it all seems like a blur. It happens so quick. But if we could, if we could slow things down, and look at it frame by frame. What would it look like? Well, first, the suggestion of sin comes into our minds. When that happens, we can either, by the power of the Holy Spirit, reject it. Or, if we don't do that, we delight in it. We think, ah, wouldn't that be good? That's the way temptation works. If there was nothing in the temptation that was appealing, it wouldn't be much of a temptation, right? It'd be, it'd be ruled out of hand. If the tree was ugly and the fruit was rotten, it would not have been a delight to Eve's eyes. There would have been nothing tempting or alluring there. The suggestion in such a case would just come into our minds and we would shake it off. But if there is something appealing in the suggestion, then that becomes a temptation indeed. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And at that point, we have a decision to make. Are we going to resist the suggestion, resist the delight, or are we going to consent to the suggestion and give our consent to the delight? We can either say, no, that suggestion is a sin and I want no part of it. By the grace of God and the assistance of the Holy Spirit, this stops right here. Or we can say, yes, I like the suggestion. I want to carry it out. Now, if we choose to make opportunity for the flesh instead of resisting temptation, then we give our consent to the temptation. And this then is followed out by the sinful action itself, that is, actually committing the sin. And then, if there is no repentance, this is followed by perseverance in the sin, which is to say, continuing on in the sin and a refusing to turn away from it. Though the sources of temptation are multiple, nevertheless, they, they often follow the same or at least a, a similar tack. Now, having seen the way that temptation operates, let's try to think about how to overcome it. In order to do this, we need to learn to recognize the half-truths the false insinuations, and the outright lies that come to us from whatever source that might be, the world, the flesh, the devil, from wherever they come. And in order to recognize a lie as a lie, we need to be grounded in the truth. We need to know what God has truly said. We need to know what his commandments are. We need to know his truth, his character, his attributes, his love for us, his plan of salvation for us through Christ. We need to know. If we don't know God's truth and we don't take our stand upon God's truth, then we're going to fall. And so in order to know what God has said, we need to know God's word. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to hear it preached and taught. Just think of Deuteronomy 6, 6 and following. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. We need to know what God has said and we need to know God's character so that we will not be led astray into thinking that something God has forbidden from us is actually good for us or something that he has actually commanded us to do is somehow bad for us. When we know who God is, we learn that his commandments for us are for our good 
And then we can imitate our Lord Jesus, who in temptation continually reverted to the word of God. That was his refrain. It is written. It is written. It is written. And that needs to be our refrain as well. It is written. And when we face temptation, also we need to utilize prayer. We find in Ephesians 6.18 the command, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Jesus said to the disciples, Matthew 26.41, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And, of course, that's one of the explicit petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm sure that there are other helpful things that can be said in regard to resisting temptation, but surely this does give us a good start. To be grounded in God's truth, grounded in the truths of who God is, so that we're not led astray. And recognizing our own weakness, we should pray, we should ask for help. Temptation is real, and the results are horrific. And so we need to seek to utilize those means which God has, has given to us. He's given us His Word. He's given us His truth. Let us know it. He's given us the Lord Jesus Christ. We see His example. Let's seek to follow it by the aid of the Holy Spirit. He's given us salvation from sin and death and judgment through Christ going to the cross for us. These seven verses from Genesis 3 that we've seen are quite sad and quite sobering when we understand the truth of what took place on that day. But nevertheless, it is important and essential that we understand what took place that day because this has effects for who we are and why we are the way we are. It's necessary for us to understand the bad news of Genesis 3 and the bad news of our sin and misery so that we can understand the good news of salvation, forgiveness, and new life which comes to us through Jesus Christ. Would you please join with me in prayer? Our Father, we know all too well the scenario of which we have read of temptation and lies being told to us and of giving in to those lies, believing them. Father, we are thankful, though, for the fact that you have redeemed sinners, that you have sent to us salvation. Though we deserve to die, yet you are merciful. You've given us Christ. Lord, we ask that we would depend upon Christ in our moment of trial and temptation. We pray that we would imitate Christ, that we'd be well grounded in your truth, and that knowing your truth and relying upon your strength, we would take our stand in the evil day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.